0: Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Jessa Lingle, author of The Gentrification of the Internet, published by University of California Press in February 2023. The gentrification of the internet argues that much like our cities, the internet has become gentrified, dominated by the interests of business and capital rather than the interests of the people who use it. Jessa Lingle uses the politics and debates of gentrification to diagnose the massive systemic problems blighting our contemporary Internet. But there are still steps we can take to reclaim the heady possibilities of the Internet. And this book outlines actions that Internet activists and everyday users can take to carve out more spaces of freedom for people online. Jessa Lingle is associate professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, where she also works with the Creative Resilience Collective and the Workers' Solidarity Network. Jessa, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, Before we get started talking about your book, could you share a little bit about yourself with listeners, where you grew up and went to school, and how you started thinking and writing about the internet? Sure.
1: So I grew up in Northern California and um, went to UC San Diego and then moved to the East Coast and eventually found my way to working as a librarian. Um, I got my MLIS from Pratt and then I got a PhD in library science at Rutgers and I kind of always thought that I would end up being a professor of library science. And then um, somewhere along the way, I just really felt more drawn to studying digital culture. Um, so I kind of came by Internet studies and Internet power through a number of other interests. But I sort of have this commitment. I like to think that's still in keeping with librarianship and thinking of information and information technologies as these resources that are only as good as they are able to serve a general public. So that's a little bit of how I came to this kind of research and um, the the job I have now at Penn.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Uh, So turning to your new book, The Gentrification of the Internet, I would love if you could talk about your overarching goals for this book. Who did you write it for and what do you hope they will take away from it?
1: So I've written a couple other books that are more squarely for academics. And this book, I was really trying to reach a more general audience. And it really grew out of teaching classes on digital culture for about a decade now. And if you... Teach the same material for long enough, you sort of notice these changes in how the young people who come into your classroom think about things. So, when I first started teaching digital culture, you know, back in the heyday of mainstream tech companies like Facebook and Twitter, you know, students back then had this real sense of optimism about the internet, and they usually walked into my classroom being skeptical of my ideas that the internet could, you know, be really harmful or have these implications for surveillance or that there were these inequalities built into the internet. And over time, my job has completely changed because now my students walk in the classroom and they bring a lot of skepticism to the idea that the internet could ever be something that would be democratic, that it could be something that worked towards people's you know, liberation or freedom, um, those ideas feel very out of touch, um, to them. So trying to make sense of how that radical shift happened in 10 years, I wanted to write a book that could sort of talk through those changes and talk through the development of the internet and help people see how we got the web that we have and how it could be different.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you're so right that our our impressions, our hopes and dreams for the internet have really, really shifted a lot. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, they really have. And it's interesting. And I it's it's kind of taken the wind out of my sails as someone who's sort of early on staked my career sort of being a skeptic of the internet. And now there's so many more people on board that train. And so it really does sort of force you to think about, um, okay, what are we all doing here? We can't just live in defeatism. We have to sort of think about a way forward or a way um, to build the kind of communities um, that we would want to see online and not just sort of give way to, I don't know, nihilism or something.
0: Totally. Yeah. Um, And you just use the term building communities, which is a great way to um, dive into the metaphor that you really center around in this book. you use the term gentrification in the title, and that's um, a real core part of what you're um, kind of unpacking. And so the first chapter digs into what exactly you mean when you use the term gentrification to talk about what's happening to the internet. What do you understand urban gentrification to mean? And then why did you feel like it's a particularly useful metaphor for talking about the internet?
1: So urban gentrification is a concept or a problem that people in urban studies have been thinking about at least since the 1970s. And it refers to a set of changes in a neighborhood. So typically where a neighborhood that hasn't seen a lot of public investment, doesn't have a lot of resources, suddenly becomes attractive to a new group of residents and a new group of developers. Um, And so typically this means working class folks and people of color, the neighborhoods where they live and have lived for a long time, um, suddenly become attractive to developers. And then a new group of folks who usually are white, usually have more money move in. And that really changes the, fabric of the neighborhood, the social fabric of the neighborhood, as well as the economics of the neighborhood and even the architecture. So over time, a neighborhood can become unrecognizable to the people who have lived there the longest and made the deepest commitments to it. So if you've lived in a gentrifying neighborhood, um, you're probably familiar with some of these debates. Uh, I know people who spend a fair amount of time, you know, sort of thinking and talking about it and sometimes feeling optimistic about gentrification and other times feeling um, either really guilty or really pessimistic about it. And so the fact that there are these heated debates and tensions around gentrification are partly what make it so appealing to me as a metaphor for thinking about digital culture. Because when you start talking about the changes that we've seen online in the past, say, 30 years you also get these sort of heated debates around, well, who are the winners and who are the losers and who is it good for and who is it bad for? And so on the one hand, I like gentrification as a metaphor because I think it talks about the you know, social and political changes at stake in digital culture. But I also think that the debates and the sort of divisiveness around gentrification make it a helpful metaphor for thinking about um, something as important to our everyday lives as the internet, as digital culture.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, and so then the the following chapters uh, after the first chapter get into different parts of um, gentrification. And so the second chapter specifically looks at the concept of displacement that is a real part of urban gentrification. Uh, while some people are being actively invited into a space, others are being pushed out. How have you seen displacement happening in the digital realm? And what are some of the impacts of that?
1: So I think about displacement with gentrification in two ways. I think of it in terms of individual users who either come to feel like a platform isn't meant for them or who are actively sort of pushed off a platform because the rules change so you might think of a platform like Tumblr, for example, which originally had this um, very active, not safe for work community. This group of, you know, sex workers or just people who, who enjoyed posting erotic content online, and that was part of Tumblr's identity as a pro-sex, pro-LGBTQ, um, pro-feminist community. It was sort of leaning into sexuality and creativity. And then when Tumblr was bought by a new, you know, when Tumblr was purchased um, and it made this sort of the rounds, it was purchased originally by Yahoo and then um, Comcast and then these other groups, Um, that sort of commitment to those groups of users Fell apart, And then those people were actively pushed out of the platform. So some people, you know, were kicked off by the new policy. Others who maybe weren't posting content but enjoyed it suddenly felt unwelcome. So there's that kind of displacement where individual users who had felt at home in an online community are now suddenly unable to use it because of policy changes that are catering towards a mainstream vision of, of what acceptable uses of the Internet are. The other kind of displacement that I talk about is really entire platforms sort of struggling to keep up with um, mainstream platforms. So I've talked, you know, I've done research on communities like BME or Body Modification eZine, which is an online platform for people interested in body modification. And in that community, you really see this story of people who are kind of living up to the best promises of the internet, where you're sort of like, people who are geographically dispersed coming together because of a niche interest and then building community. And then over time, and just struggling to make that community hold as they're competing with larger platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, Another example that I've researched and talked about in the book is Craigslist, um, which is a platform that has outlasted many other platforms online. It goes all the way back to 1997. Um, But the platform that sort of comes to seem more outdated and less usable simply through comparison with these other larger, more well-resourced platforms.
0: Totally. I mean, all the things you were describing also sound like the things that I see happening in my neighborhood and neighborhoods around mine living in New York City. And so it's really interesting to think about like these Parallels between the physical world and the digital world. Um, how have you seen um, some of those communities be be impacted by being displaced? What are some of the outcomes?
1: So um... in urban gentrification, you sort of see people lose a sense of their connection to a neighborhood. So even if they're not forced to leave, like they can't keep up with the rent or they can't keep up with the property taxes, their neighbors leave, and suddenly they don't feel at home in the neighborhood or the businesses that come in sort of implicitly or explicitly exclude them. And so it really comes to feel like a neighborhood where you spend a lot of time and put a lot of investment in, you're no longer able to be welcome there or see yourself there. And that's the kind of displacement that you see online um, is, you know, people no longer feeling at home in communities where they've put a lot of work into building. Um, And so sometimes groups go off and sort of try and build their own platforms. Uh, Sometimes groups try and carve out their own spaces on mainstream platforms and just sort of fly under the radar um, as far as obeying different rules and policies the platform might have. So some communities sort of try and make it work. Other communities just sort of disband, and you know, then it becomes a question of losing some of the vibrancy and the diversity that the internet at its best should be promising.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And the way you describe all that, like the, it just makes this metaphor of gentrification so useful for understanding the nuance. Um, And so then the third chapter of the book looks at how big tech's values specifically contribute to gentrification in three specific ways, Uh, by physically taking over local neighborhoods, through a lack of diversity in the workforce, and through an emphasis on profit over people. I was also really grateful that you asked this question of how big tech could be a better neighbor. So, could you talk more about the problems big tech brings to our neighborhoods and how new narratives for success, among other things, might change those dynamics?
1: Yeah. So, there are people who are going to read the book and be like, I don't know, seems like you're really pushing this metaphor too far. And what's like the, it really seems like that's not that useful if it's so abstract. But I would say, um, there are very direct links between gentrification and the tech industry, and those most direct links come from big tech acting as a neighbor in urban areas. And so I'm thinking of places like San Francisco, um, places uh, in, in other major tech neighborhood um, hot spots, so places like Vancouver, places like Tel Aviv. You know, where big tech moves these headquarters in, and then they're just really not great neighbors to the long-term residents there. So um, hard to find more of a hot spot than San Francisco, which, of course, I also think a lot about because it's near where I grew up in the East Bay. And so that's where you have... Very wealthy people coming in, uh, buying up property in cash um, that then forces out long-term residents. And even when it doesn't force them out, um, people just acting in ways that make it very clear who they think the neighborhood is for. So there was a famous case of a bunch of tech workers um, creating a platform to like reserve a basketball court in San Francisco and then pushing literally saying to neighborhood kids who had played there for years, you can't play here. We reserved this spot online. Um, Or sort of like tech guys writing these sort of manifestos about homelessness in San Francisco and sort of complaining about the problem of poverty as if they don't have any role in say jacking up rents or making uh, mortgages unviable for normal working class people. And so And that says you can look at big tech and say they are actively contributing to gentrification in these major tech zones. And also on an individual level, you know, some of these tech workers just feel very entitled to be really bad neighbors um, to long term residents. Um, So that's a very direct link between gentrification as an urban phenomenon and big
0: tech. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In Somewhat related to big tech, then you also dive into regulation um, in in chapter four, looking specifically at the changing landscape of internet service providers in the United States. How has policymaking played a role in creating the internet we use today? And how is it directly resulting in forces that gentrify the internet?
1: So... In that chapter, I'm really trying to get into um, some of the nitty gritty of how the Internet works. And so in some ways, it's like one of the driest arguments, but it's also like, um, you know, kind of fundamental to how the Internet works and some of how the decisions that we've made about the Internet's infrastructure also reflect priorities of commercialization over creativity. So in the United States, you know, ISPs or internet service providers are uh, basically a series of monopolies. So in most parts of the country, you you have the choice of one internet service provider, maybe two. And that is totally different from how it was in the late um, 1990s, early 2000s, where you had the choice of, you know, Five, six, up to a dozen internet service providers because they were run by local mom-and-pop shops or like small businesses. Um, many bulletin board services or BBSs converted to ISPs in the early 2000s. So you really had this wealth of different companies that could serve your needs as a consumer. And then over time, that sort of diversity, that sort of community focus role of an ISP shifted and has become what we have now. Um, I live in Philadelphia, the home of Comcast. So like we are lucky here that we can choose between Comcast and Fios, but um, most people across the country are not able to have that choice. And even when you only have a choice between two competitors, it's bad for consumers just in terms of price because more competition usually drives price down. But it's also bad if you care about things like, um, large ISPs and their privacy policies. So many ISPs have agreements that you can't really opt out of as a consumer to share your data in terms of which platform you log on to um, with third parties. Um, And so that's... If you are a privacy concerned person and you don't like your ISP's privacy policies, there's really nothing that you can do about that if you want to be online. It's either you're on Comcast or you're not, or if you're in another part of the country, you're on Verizon or you're not. So um, all of those, that entire transformation is something that is regulated um, or should be regulated. But right now we have a very hands-off um, approach to regulation of ISPs in the United States. So there were these key decision points. You know, there was a moment where the National Science Foundation or the NSF actually ran um, all ISPs in this country, and then the decision to make that be a commercial decision, uh, a commercial um, entity. You know, the ISPs would be commercially run rather than by the federal government. Is something that really kicks off the commercialization that we've we've seen today. So. Um, there were these different moments when we could have invited more regulation in, and if we had done that earlier, we might see a very different landscape than what we have today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like you mentioned, I think one of the one of the things that we definitely see at places where I live, where you know, like Brooklyn, feels like it was carved up into um, a couple of ISPs who each get a section. Um, we, we see that really directly in how there's no price competition. But then I was so grateful that you brought out like these other impacts, like you mentioned the, um, the inability to dispute privacy policies. And um, there's a lot for us as regular internet users to think about. Um, and then your final chapter is titled Resistance, and it points us to what we can do you write that what's needed is more rights for users and more ways to turn feelings of skepticism and paranoia into a sense of power. Could you share with listeners some of the tactics we should explore in fighting back against the gentrification of the internet?
1: So this chapter came through looking at the different practices of anti-gentrification activists and trying to see where they had won some successes and then trying to think about are there ways that we can see that playing out online? And so some of the suggestions in that chapter are are pretty familiar to folks who already have concerns about privacy or, or media regulation. And others are just small steps that people can take where you really do begin to feel yourself having more ownership over your own data or over your own time online. So what I mean by that is... Um, I call it being your own algorithm. So, it it the content that comes our way online is, as most folks know by now, determined by a set of algorithms. So, when you go on TikTok, um, TikTok over time learns your preferences, and then it sends you content that it hopes you will like and engage with. And um, as a result, over time, you sort of wind up seeing content that is very filtered. you. Uh, So for example, if you are a yoga-loving vegan living in an urban area, you suddenly start to see content that only reflects those interests rather than something that might also interest you but doesn't fit into that sort of narrow filter bubble, bubble, as Eli Pariser calls it. And so being your own algorithm is taking that extra step and sort of actively working to diversify the content that comes your way so what this looked like for me on a platform that i was using a lot like tumblr was i actively started to follow a bunch of black women comedians and when i did that um after sort of looking at my online you know platform and it was like i'm following a bunch of librarians a bunch of academics um if you you know, unfortunately, if we look at who librarians tend to be, who academics tend to be, there was like a lot whiter than I wanted my online content to be. So I was like, I can fix this. I'll just start following a bunch of Black women comedians, and when I did that. Not only did my platform become more diverse and also became a lot funnier, you know, the content that came my way, but it also just like exposed me to a set of like ambient news that I hadn't heard of, you know, like comedians bringing in news stories and current events and posting about things that I otherwise hadn't heard of. And that really sort of forced me to grapple with how much um, making small changes to the content that I interact with online can actually have this huge impact in terms of the kinds of content that comes my way. So there's that level of taking ownership of your content, right? Divi- you know, deliberately working to deliver, uh, deliberately working to diversify um, what you see and engage with online. And then there's other things that might feel f- somewhat familiar to folks who work in this space, which is really taking the time to understand your privacy policies. Really taking the time to go through your settings. Think about what kinds of content you want to share what you want to keep private what kinds of data you want to um, share with folks and what kinds of data that you don't installing things like um, you know don't track me software on your browser using a vpn or a virtual private network Those are all, you know, things some people call it like digital hygiene, I sort of sometimes think of it like flossing or brushing your teeth, it's like a very small step that you can take that actually has this huge payoff, not only in terms of protecting your privacy, but also just in terms of forcing you to understand in a more nuanced way, the different options that these platforms are giving you as a user It really does sort of open you up to how a platform thinks of you as a user by the options that they give you or by the amount of work that they want you to do um, just to maintain your privacy. So I really believe taking small steps like that um, can change the content that we encounter and we engage with and can open us up to bigger conversations about the relationships between people and platforms and data.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I really appreciate it. Like, those kinds of specific suggestions Um, and you're actually reminding me of one other part of the book is a very small part um, that comes after the last chapter uh, because I'm like the kind of person who always gets a new book and flips to the back to see the bibliography. I also then noticed before the bibliography is a list of resources and you actually list uh, a number of anti-gentrification organizations and also some tech and social justice organizations that are doing this kind of work to fight gentrification in our physical neighborhoods and in the digital realm. And I was just wondering if there are any that you would really um, like to highlight any of these organizations that um, you're really excited about some of the work they're, they're um, taking the lead on.
1: Yeah, I really wanted for there's nothing worse than reading a book that just talks about problems and then you feel like you don't have anything to do with, you know, the criticisms that you've just learned. So I was really hoping to end the book with here are ways to get involved or you don't have to create an organization from scratch. Like here are groups that are already working on this. So I'm a huge fan of the Tech Learning Collective in New York. Um, they host workshops, um, which are available online. So even if you're not in New York, you can attend. Um, and they're everything from basic tech literacy, like, you know, what is a VPN? How do you use it? Um, to privacy workshops, to coding workshops. Um, they have a really fierce commitment to feminism, to um being queer-friendly. And so I think they're really an example of a group that is working precisely at the intersection of you know, technology and social justice politics. So that's one group that I'm um, really invested in. Um, Actually, half the the royalties from the book, half of it goes to the Tech Learning Collective and the other half goes to um, a women's owned land trust here in Philadelphia. So trying to make sure that I'm recognizing both online and offline gentrification. The other group that I'll promote is the... um, Philadelphia Community Wireless, which is a community-owned internet project here in Philadelphia that I'm a part of, um, that is really trying to bring technological resources to people in a way that makes them stewards and not just users of technology.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Um, And... Then finally, before we wrap up today, I would love to hear what you're working on next, Um, whether you're working on any new projects that grow out of this book specifically or something completely new, anything you'd like to share about
1: I have a completely new project about the history of the polygraph, so I'm working working on this project that looks at the polygraph as a device that can really help us think about relationships between people and technologies and surveillance. So um, it's a a cool project. I'm still in the very early phases, but um, it's been fun to work on.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. Um, Well, Jessa, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Once again, my guest today is Jessa Lingle, author of The Gentrification of the Internet, published by University of California Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of New Books Network.